The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. All right, well, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Hey, can you guys give it up for our creative team? Don't they do a great job? Isn't that good? That's so good, so good. I love, I love uh, living and serving in a city with creative people. It makes me feel so insecure about myself. It's so awesome. <laughs> Hey, well, welcome to Story City. We're so glad that you're here this morning. Hey, we start a brand new series today, and that series is called Unusual Suspects. I'm really, really pumped about this, and uh, we're going to be in the book of Luke. If you happen to bring a Bible today, Luke chapter 4 is our starting point. Luke chapter 4 is our starting point. If you didn't bring a Bible, we're going to put the verses on the screen, and if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one out in the lobby after the service at the Connect table. And so we begin this new series called Unusual Suspects. This series is intended to kind Kind of give us a glimpse into the types of people that Jesus came to save, that he came to serve, that he came to attract. And so we're going to be in the book of Luke for a good amount of this series, and I'm really, really pumped about it. The key verse in the entire book of Luke comes from Luke chapter 19. I think this is important because as we spend a lot of time in the book of Luke, it's important to know and try to wrap the series around the entire theme of the book of Luke. And so we see the theme in the book of Luke. In Luke chapter 19, it's in verse 10. And this is what Dr. Luke, the author, says. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's going to wrap our entire series around that whole idea. It's going to wrap the entire book around this whole idea. Who did Jesus come for? Who did he attract? Who did he come to serve? Who did he come to save? And so today, we're going to get our first glimpse into the types of people that Jesus came to attract. If you'll just do this with me as we begin this series, I just want to pray for us today. Um, Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for today. God, we open up your word. God, we have... um, God, we have no other place to go but to your word. It's the loudest voice in our church. And so, God, speak to us today. We need you, Lord. We need to hear from you. Speak to us deeply. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hands and feet, to walk in the direction that you would speak to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody in the Colony Theater said amen and amen. Well, my daughter started volleyball uh, two weeks ago, and uh, we went to one of her practices a couple weeks ago, and her coach was wearing this shirt that said, y'all need Jesus. I thought it was kind of funny. Uh, everybody has a different reaction to Jesus, and I didn't know if you know, it was sort of a, you know, using Jesus for a joke or what. Then two practices later, she was wearing another shirt. It said, Team Jesus. And I'm like, okay, I see where this is going. This is really, really cool. But I thought this is strange because... In Georgia, uh, people wear Team Jesus and y'all need Jesus shirts. In LA, you don't typically see people wearing Jesus paraphernalia. I thought this is really, really strange. And I started thinking about it. And I'm wondering, why is it that people in LA don't wear Jesus paraphernalia? Everybody has a different reaction to Jesus. Jesus elicits this strong reaction. You either love him or you hate him. But quite honestly, most people arrive at this um, understanding of Jesus where they're just okay with him. Maybe they're apathetic with Jesus. Maybe they think he's kind. Maybe they're bored with Jesus. But when you really understand who he is. When you really see Jesus for what he taught and what he stands for and who he attracts, it elicits a very different response. And until you really encounter Jesus, then you're really just okay with him. 
you're bored with him, you're, you're apathetic about him, maybe you just think he's a kind person, but when you really get to know Jesus, you either want to crucify him or you just really want to fall on him in such a dependence that he just radically changes your life. But the reality when we read scripture is there's no lukewarm, wishy-washy response to the real Jesus. Today we encounter Jesus. He's going to elicit these two responses. He's up until now, Jesus has in Luke chapter four, Jesus has sort of lived this, this normal life. He's around 30. He's single. He's worked in his dad's business as a carpenter for years. And uh, he's not really been noticeable at all up until this point in Luke chapter four. But he begins his ministry and Jesus is going to start making people really, really mad. He's going to start this series of teaching and he's going to talk about the types of people that he attracts, the types of people that come around him. Have you ever wondered, have you ever thought, who are the types of people that follow Jesus? Who are the types of people that he attracts? Who are the types of people that come to church? Are they, are they weak-minded people? Are they people that have desperate social need? Are they people that have desperate physical need? What types of people does Jesus attract? I think we're going to see in this series, it's a group of unusual Suspects, I believe in Luke chapter 4 today, our church is not going to be surprised. I don't think you're going to be surprised today by the broad categories that Jesus is going to talk about here as we begin this series. In fact, I think many of you today will amen the teaching of Jesus in Luke chapter 4. I'm also confident there's maybe a few of you here or listening online that are going to struggle with some of what Jesus is saying. Read with me Luke chapter 4. Starting in verse 14 today, the scripture says, and Jesus returned to Galilee. Galilee is the region. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the spirit. The first 13 verses of Luke chapter four give us this uh, narration of Jesus fasting for 40 days in the wilderness. Verse one of chapter four tells us he was full of the spirit of God. It says in verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the spirit and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. Now listen to what verse 15 says. And he was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. And so Jesus is teaching He's teaching in these religious circles. He's demonstrating power, the same power that allowed him to go out into the wilderness and refuse temptation and resist temptation. And, and so Jesus is teaching the religious people throughout Galilee. And we see the power of his teaching. It's unusual, and he's being unusually accepted by everyone. Now listen, this is the last time we're going to see Jesus approved of and accepted by the majority of people that he encounters. By the way, that continues today. From this point forward in Luke chapter four, Jesus is going to attract crowds. Jesus is going to repel crowds. He's gonna be loved by a few, and he's gonna be hated by many. In fact, when you read the book of Luke, there are six passages that talk about Jesus's ministry on the Sabbath. Five of those six passages in the book of Luke talking about Jesus's ministry on the Sabbath, they all end and lead to controversy and dissension. So for the next two chapters here in the book of Luke, we're going to see the types of people that Jesus attracts, 
the types of people who are repelled by him. Now, verse 16, it says, and he went to Nazareth. Remember, he came to Galilee, that's the region. And then he went to Nazareth, that's the town. That's where he's from, where he'd been brought up, it says. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. Jesus went to church, he went frequently, that's good, okay? Remember that, he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. Synagogue services in this time usually had a set program. There was usually a prescribed reading from the first five books of the Old Testament, known as the law. And then there was also a reading from the prophets. And the reading from the prophets was open to whoever was doing the readings. And so Jesus stands up to read. He volunteers to read. He's handed the book of Isaiah, one of the prophets, and he has the choice to read from wherever he wants to. And so he turns to Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, and this is what he reads. Listen to verse 18. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me. He's reading a prophecy about himself. Because he has anointed me to proclaim, listen to what he says, good news to the who? Poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the who? Prisoners. Recovery of sight for the who? Blind. To set the oppressed free. We've already seen. Luke 4, verse 1. Jesus is full of the power of the Spirit of God. We see it again in verse 14. He's teaching with this power of the Spirit. He's demonstrated that the Spirit of the Lord is on him, just as the verse that he just read in Isaiah is foreshadowing. And so we begin to see the types of people that Jesus came to attract, the unusual suspects he came for. He came to preach the good news to the poor. He came to give freedom to the captives. He came to give sight to the blind. He came to set free the oppressed. Now let me pause here, and this is not the point of the passage, but let me just say it. Jesus is not teaching some sort of liberation theology where Jesus came to reform society's structures. It's not what he's teaching here. Jesus came to transform individuals who would in turn Take part in God's mission to transform the structures in which we live and serve. He's not teaching some sort of liberation theology, but the point of the imagery here in verse 18 that Jesus quotes from Isaiah 61 is that those people who have a sense of need, who have deep, basic human needs are more likely to hear the message that he's going to preach. And I believe the church can learn from what Jesus is saying here. We don't just need to spiritualize the idea of the poor and the blind and the oppressed. Yes, those are images for sin and God came to set us free from sin, but we don't need to skip over it. Listen, that also includes the poor. It also includes the blind, right? And there's language that G, uh, the, the, the author Luke is going to use later on here in the book. It's similar to this language in the next two chapters. Now read verse 19 with me. He continues to quote Isaiah 61. He starts in verse 2 of Isaiah 61. And he says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20, then he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. Uh, this, is so, the eye, this is so descriptive. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus stops reading in Isaiah chapter 61, verse two. Now this is the second half of verse two that Jesus does not get to. Jesus is this unusual character in their presence. They know it. They sense it. They, they feel Jesus' power. They're hanging on every word that he says. Remember, 
Up until this point, he's been accepted by everyone, but he stops in the middle of Isaiah chapter 61, verse two, and that says, he sent me, meaning God, he's reading a foreshadowing about himself, God sent me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, you don't read the rest of verse two, but the rest of verse two says, and the day of vengeance for our God. Why does Jesus stop in Isaiah 61, first half of verse two? Because that's exactly what's happening with the arrival of Jesus. The season of God's grace had come with Jesus. The second half of verse two in Isaiah 61, the day of vengeance, refers to the second coming of Jesus. It refers to the day of judgment when God wraps it all up together. And so Jesus is reading from Isaiah 61, one and two the part that's being fulfilled in front of their very eyes. And Jesus sits down. It is such a descriptive passage. They, they want more. It's, it's so descriptive. They want to hear Jesus' interpretation of the passage. He's spoken from the passage, by the way, about their long-awaited Messiah. Everybody in the room knew exactly who this passage was referring to. The Jews were looking for a Messiah, the one they've been waiting on. And then Jesus says to them, I am the one you've been looking for. I'm the one this passage has taught you to look for. So today, as you listen to me, this scripture has been fulfilled. Now think about that just for a moment. You're either a liar or you're the Messiah to make a claim like that. And this is how they respond. Listen to how they respond. Verse 22, all spoke well of him and they were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. And then they said, this is, this, isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. <laughs> Their initial response is, is mixed. They're amazed at what Jesus is saying. On the other hand, they're sort of confused. They remember this guy is the son of a usual, ordinary carpenter. They're looking for a liberator. They're looking for someone. Remember, they're captive to Rome. Isaiah says he will bring freedom to the prisoners. They're looking for a political king. They're looking for a political, no way in their mind. A king comes from the son of a usual, ordinary carpenter. They look at each other. Isn't this the son of the guy who made our coffee table? Is this, who is this, they say. This guy is too usual. He's too ordinary. And so the praise that Jesus has been receiving is about to come to an abrupt end. He's not what they're looking for. He's not what they've been hoping for. Have you ever had one of those experiences in life? Something happens, you're like, this is not what I was hoping for. Maybe it was last night's restaurant choice. Maybe it was your 20s. Maybe it was your 30s. Maybe it's your 60s. Maybe it's retirement. Maybe it's last night's restaurant choice. Maybe it's moving to this city. Maybe it's marriage. Maybe it's your career. I just know this to be true in life when expectations fail to meet reality. Disappointment is inevitable. Can I ask you this morning, is Jesus what you've been looking for? Is he what you've been looking for? Maybe in your mind today, in your, as you process 
Jesus. You say, Jesus is not what I was looking for socially. Jesus is not what I was looking for culturally. Jesus is not looking, not what I was looking for politically. Do, do you take Jesus for who he is this morning? All of him. Not just the parts of him that you're not really comfortable with. Not just the parts of Jesus that mess with your habits. Not just the parts of Jesus that mess with your sexuality. Not just the parts of Jesus that mess with your career and your plans. Can I help you this morning? When you see Jesus for who he really is, not for who you want him to be, it will begin to alleviate some of the disappointment that you have in him. And let me remind you, Jesus is the king of his kingdom, not the servant of our kingdom. He's the king of his kingdom, not the servant of our kingdom. Do you see Jesus for who he really is? And so they're beginning to see Jesus for who he really is, and they don't like it. They're affected by the Jesus they see. Now listen to how Jesus responds to them because he senses their response. Listen to verse 23. And Jesus said to them, surely you're gonna quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. That's where he was before he came. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. He looks at these religious people in this synagogue and he says, you came here today and you were motivated by curiosity. You weren't motivated by genuine spiritual interest. You saw me heal in Capernaum and you came here today because you thought you were gonna see the same thing happen here in Nazareth. In Nazareth. In other words, Jesus says to the people he's speaking to, I know you like me. I know everything I have said so far, you have Love, but wait until you hear what I'm about to say. Wait until you hear what I'm about to do. Wait until you hear what my kingdom will be like. Wait until you hear who I'm going to welcome into my kingdom. Verse 25, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut up for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, them being who? God's chosen people, the people in Israel. Elijah, God's prophet, was not sent, verse 25, verse 26, wasn't sent to any of them, but who was he sent to? To a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Now listen to verse 27. And there were many in Israel with leprosy, in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman. Who? Not one of God's chosen people, not a Jew, but Naaman the Syrian. So Jesus begins to tell this story from 1 Kings chapter 17 about Elijah the prophet. He was, he was so unpopular during his day. There's a drought and there's a famine and he's sent to seek shelter and refuge in a Gentile town, Okay. Northwest of Galilee, he's sent to a woman, he's sent to a widow, he's sent to a person who's poor, he's sent to a Gentile. In that day, four strikes, four strikes against her. But she's the one who received the mercy of God. Jesus tells this story about God passing over all the ethnic Jews. And instead, he brings this miraculous Blessing to the most unusual suspect, a poor Gentile widow from Phoenicia. 
and Jesus is not even sympathetic about it. He, he's, he, he's, not even, he's not even compassionate. He's blatant and he's forceful. And he says, there were a lot of widows in Israel, but God blessed the foreigner. And then he goes on to tell another story. If that's as if that wasn't brutal enough to the Jews he's speaking to, he goes on to tell another story from 2 Kings chapter 5 about Elisha who passed over healing all the lepers in Israel in his time. And instead, he only healed Naaman the Syrian who was a Gentile king. He was, he was a Gentile soldier. The Syrians were enemies of Israel. In fact, if you read the story of Naaman, you find out that, that uh, the, the, the Syrians had just captured this young girl. They made her a servant to the Aramean king. Not only that, but Naaman is a leper. And yet Naaman was the one who received mercy. In other words, of all the people God could have chosen to heal of leprosy. He chose a foreign king. He chose a Syrian. He chose not a Jew. Now, if this isn't making sense to you, hold on just for a moment. The Jews of Nazareth, as they're listening to Jesus here in Luke chapter 4, they've had enough. And what we're about to see proceed is an outrage of racism in Nazareth. Listen to verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. Why are they so angry? Why are the people so angry? He's reminding them of stories where the enemies of God were loved by God. The types of people that, 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 that um, Jesus is bringing up are examples of the kinds of people that are oppressing them now. They understand what Jesus is saying and they don't like it. Have you ever so disliked someone? You'd be happy if the mercy of God was never shown to them. That's what's happening here in the synagogue. Verse 29, they got up, they drove him out of the town, they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. So they're not happy. <laughs> they're about to mob Jesus. This isn't a flash mob. How about this for a reaction to your first sermon? They try to throw Jesus off a cliff, and look what Jesus does. Verse 30, but he walked right through the crowd, and he went on his way. Why is it, and what was it about Jesus that made everyone praise him? To now making them want to throw Jesus off the cliff. I believe it was this. Because they realized that Jesus' mission was ethnically different from what they thought. They realized that Jesus' mission was ethnically different from what they thought. Jesus is speaking here to Jews in Luke chapter 4. But he didn't just come for Jewish people. There's a harsh reality for people who were listening to Jesus in the synagogue that day. And the harsh reality was his kingdom was more ethnically diverse than they had even imagined. The Jews, if you know the Old Testament, are God's chosen people. They're given this privilege of, of making God known to the world. We read Genesis chapter 12. 
They've given us privilege of carrying God's salvation to the ends of the earth, not just to enjoy the blessing that God had put on them for themselves. And so the commission that God had given, gave, given them did not lead them to humility or, or gratitude or, or compassion for other people. It led them to pride. It led them to disrespect. And Jesus shows up and he starts pointing it out. <laughs> this is not about the Jews. This is not about their race. This is not about their ethnicity. This is about the Gentiles receiving mercy and the Jewish people had a problem with that. We see this diversity from the opening pages of scripture. We see it in the story in Genesis in the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. The whole earth had the same language. They came together. They're going to build this great city, which God said would lead to them, not depending on him, but depending on themselves. So God scatters them in different tongues and different ethnicities throughout the world so that it would uh, create a situation where they didn't believe they could conquer the world, rather depend on him. And then just a few chapters later, God gives this commission to Abraham, in fact, the very next chapter to Abraham, that he will be a blessing to who? Not just the Jews, to the entire world. They would carry the good news to all nations, all tribes, all tongues. We see it again in Acts chapter 2. Jesus has died. He's been buried. He rose to the right hand of the Father. He's preached his message. He's gone back to where he came from. And now Peter is preaching the gospel. Acts chapter 2. The Bible tells in Acts chapter 2, there's a diverse crowd happening here. There's people from every nation here. And they're hearing the gospel in their own language. We see the intent of a diverse people that God is chasing, that God is attracting, and the Jews had a problem with Jesus's inclusivity of all ethnicities. Now listen to me, and please let this sting a little, but please be encouraged. They're like all of us, naturally a little racist. People are racist for several reasons. You know this. People are racist because they're insecure, you feel like there's something about you that needs to happen. There needs to be something about you that distinguishes you from somebody else to give you a sense of self-worth. It may be your education. It could be your, your looks. It could be your wealth. But sometimes we choose something about us in terms of our entire race, about our culture. Sometimes we think there's a group of people that we are superior to, that we look down on, and it comes from a place of insecurity that feels like there needs to be something about me that distinguishes me, that gives me worth. And so racism is this way of establishing my own superiority, my, my own worth by looking down on entire races and cultures of people. There's another reason why racism exists. Simply preference. We just prefer to be around people who look like us, who share the same experiences, make the same kind of money, value the same type of educational experiences. But church, listen to me this morning. The gospel that Jesus proclaimed has the power to cure racism. It reminds us that there's nothing about us, none of us, 
that causes God to look with favor on us. There's nothing about you, there's nothing about me that causes God to look with favor on any of us. All of us are level because all of us are sinners. God's favor to us is a gift to us. It's not a right and it's not a privilege. And we see this throughout the pages of scripture. Peter, you remember him? The chief apostle. Peter, the chief apostle, had racist tendencies. Paul confronts Peter. And in Galatians chapter two, he reminds Peter, Peter, the gospel says we were outsiders and God came to us. The ultimate outsider, Peter, is a person who has a wicked heart, a sinful heart, and not because of the color of their skin. Jesus came to us, Peter, when we were wicked. Doesn't it make sense that we wouldn't keep people on the outside because of the color of their skin? because of the country of their origin, because of the tone of their dialect. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus is always going after the outsider. Remember this? Zacchaeus. Remember? The chief tax collector. Despised profession. Corrupt nature. Remember the Good Samaritan? The Samaritans. Mixed ethnicities. Worship of a pagan god. Lepers, Matthew chapter eight, the most despised and ostracized people to the Jews. And Jesus heals the lepers in Matthew chapter eight. We see another shocking example of Jesus going to outsiders in Matthew chapter eight, verse five through 13. Jesus is approached by this Roman soldier, this centurion. And this centurion comes to Jesus. He's a different ethnicity from the Jews. He's a foreigner. And the centurion begs Jesus to heal his daughter who is paralyzed. And Jesus says, I will go and I will heal her. The centurion makes a surprising statement to Jesus. And he says, Jesus, you don't need to go. I know you have power. And I know you can just say the word right here and she will be healed. And Jesus takes this entire setting, this entire scene, which everybody thought and still thinks was about miracles and healings and he flips the script on them and he turns it into a teaching moment about the unusual suspects that compose his kingdom, those who are foreigners. He warns those who are banking on some sort of ethnic background and identity for their blessing. Now listen to Matthew chapter eight, verse 10. This is the story. Truly I tell you, Jesus says, I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come, listen to what he says, from the east and the west. Many will come to me from the east and the west. What does Jesus mean? He means Phoenicia. He means Egypt. He means Greece, Turkey, Jordan, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, China, South America, Africa. And when these foreigners come with their non-kosher ways and their foreigner looks and their foreign habits, when they come into the kingdom, look what happens, Jesus says, verse 11 of Matthew 8. They will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 12, but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Put yourself in the shoes of the people who are hearing Jesus say this. These are the cho- these, this is the chosen race that Jesus is saying this to. This is shuddering. Jesus says that Romans, like the centurion, 
Samaritans, like the woman at the well. And all other non-Jewish Gentiles will enter the kingdom of heaven. What's his point? The point is that Jesus is the end of racism. The point is that Jesus is the end of racism. He says, look at me. Learn from me. I came to redeem people from every ethnic group, every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And Jesus is condemning the Jews who are standing in front of him for their failure to see the justice and the mercy of God. It's passionate about gathering people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. In other words, Jesus is ushering in this new wave of unusual suspects. He's ushering in this radical way of defining who the people of God are. Can I say to you this morning, in various cultures, including our own, in various cultures, including our own, you may receive, I may receive, you may receive advantages or disadvantages for your ethnicity or the color of your skin. Now listen to me. But in the kingdom of God, Faith in Jesus takes precedence over ethnicity. In the kingdom of God, faith in Jesus takes precedence over ethnicity. Culture may define certain races, ethnicities, ethnicities as having privilege. But in the kingdom of God, the church should definitively say there are no privileges to bring yellow, red, black, white, or brown. Privileges come to those who place their faith in Jesus alone. Why? Because Jesus is the end of racism. The church should reflect this diversity. The church should reflect this acceptance. And when you realize there's nothing about you or me that distinguishes me from anybody in God's sight, And when you realize there's a common problem of sin and there's a common solution of the blood of Jesus on the cross of Christ, that commonality becomes more important than cultural preferences. Now hear me, it's not that cultural preferences don't matter. Not that cultural preferences don't matter to you. It's just that unity matters more. In the common bond of unity in Jesus trumps our cultural preferences. Can I say to you this morning that being part of a multicultural church will require things that you don't like, that you don't prefer, but it's possible to love the body of Christ more than you love your preferences. Do you know if you put a group of people together that all look alike, of all things in common, that's not very impressive. Do you know that? It's when you have a group of people that are from different cultures and have different preferences and they come together around Jesus, that's what puts Jesus on display. Why? It causes people to wonder. It causes people to ask The question, how could this group of people come together? They don't look like each other. They don't 
eat the same foods. They don't wear the same clothes. They value different things. If you have a group of people that all look the same, that's not impressive. That's a Rolling Stones concert. That's a ballet recital. That's a rap concert. But when you come together around nothing but the gospel of Jesus, that's mind-blowing. When a group of people are more concerned about unity in Jesus than cultural preferences, that's how a multi-ethnic church happens. One of the most hurtful comments I've received over the last three and a half years being pastor here at Story City Church came from a lady who called our church. I happened to answer the phone that day and she said, hello, my name is, I received one of your flyers in the mail and I have a question for you. She said, do you allow black people in your church? I, I genuinely laughed on the phone. I, I thought somebody was pranking me, quite honestly. And I said, absolutely, we do. Why do you ask? She said, because I looked at this flyer and I don't see any black people on it. And that phone call grieved me. And it still does. Because that's not who I see Story City Church being. Burbank is ethnically diverse. White, African-American, Asian, Hispanic. I want to see that diversity reflected in our body. To be part of a multicultural church, all of us will have to give my white brothers and sisters this morning. You cannot help, I cannot help that I am white. But we will have to give. Let me close with this. Bill Hybels, pastor of one of the largest churches in the world. A friend of mine spent time with him several years ago. I was asking him about the growth of his church and he said, what would you do differently if you could do it all over again? He said, if I had to do it all over again, I would not grow a church on the homogenating principle, he said. In other words, you can grow your church faster by gathering people of similarities. Rather, he said, I would prefer to have a church that looked more like my community. A friend of mine said, Why? He said, the testimony of the American church being racially diverse would be more evangelistically effective than any one church being really large and being fully homogenous. I want to be a part of a church where Jesus matters more to us than anything so that we can be a great testimony to our city. We begin a series called Unusual Suspects with a plea for unusual diversity. And one of the signs that people really get the gospel and understand the gospel is that we embrace diversity.
We reflect diversity. We celebrate diversity. May we be that type of church. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for a challenging time in the scriptures this morning. God, I thank you that you challenge us in the depths of our soul, God, even in the places that some of us think are hidden, non-existent. God, today I pray that you would challenge some of us I pray that we would be a church that reflects and accepts diversity, God. Not for the sake of diversity, but because that's what the kingdom of God looks like. May we be that church. May we have that testimony to our city, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.